Welcome back to Psychedelic Therapy Frontiers, the podcast devoted to exploring the frontiers of psychedelic medicine and what it takes to cultivate a healthy mind, body, and spirit. I'm Dr. Steve Thayer, and today my co-host, Dr. Reed Robison, and I are brazen enough to ask the question, what is happiness? We try to define the term. We explore ancient wisdom and modern research on happiness. We talk about why the pursuit of happiness kind of defeats the purpose. We dip into how psychedelic experiences affect happiness and even reveal some of the details behind our own personal struggles with happiness. Hey, in case you haven't heard, the biggest psychedelic science conference in the world is happening this June in Denver, Colorado. The MAPS Psychedelic Science 2023 conference is coming up fast. Reed and I are super excited about being there and excited to announce that Numinous is offering an exclusive 20% discount code to our PTF podcast listeners. To access this 20% off the current registration price, click the link in our show notes below and use the code NWI20 at checkout. Also, if you're interested in developing the skills you need to provide psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy, but you don't know which training program to sign up for, sign up for ours. Our courses are carefully crafted by numinous professionals and offer a variety of high-quality learning experiences. If you'd like to learn more about these trainings, you can find the link in the show notes below as well, or you can visit numinous.com forward slash training. And as always, if you want to support us, you can go ahead and leave us a review or a rating in places like Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You can subscribe to the show and of course, share it with somebody you love. Without further ado, here's our conversation about happiness. So read the question is, are you happy? Are you really asking me this question? (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Give me a moment. Uh First, wait, what do you mean by happiness? I think that's, (laughs) that's the right answer to that question. Phew. (laughs) Are you talking about that fleeting spike of dopamine that sometimes makes us feel happy? Are you talking about like contentment and joy, everlasting, unsurpassed, like unbounded blissful awareness right and remember talking about flow am i talking about pleasure there's so many different things that sort of filter into this broad umbrella of happiness um and you know we have phrases like uh life liberty and the pursuit of happiness um and i think you know we can we're going to go all over the place like we tend to do and just have a, a wide-ranging conversation about the topic um and you'd think that a psychiatrist and a psychologist would be two people that would know a thing or two about happiness. Um, and I think we do. We have this wonderful combination of modern research, like the positive psychology research and all the research that goes into wh- how, when people lose their grip on happiness in the form of depression or other mental health conditions. We also have that combined with ancient wisdom that I think human beings, since we were conscious, have been trying to solve the problem of the conscious mind. Why does it fall out of happiness? Is happiness whatever, however we define it, worthy of pursuit. Um, lots of fun ways we can Ooh. go when we're trying to answer this question, what is happiness and how to be happy? Is it worthy of pursuit mm-hmm. triggers something in me mm. of the pursuit of happiness is a bit of a trap. Like the more you chase it, the more it tends to become out of reach. Mm. Like happiness is made up of doing things that make you happy and not something that you can just kind of 
I don't know, enter with effort and will and stay there. Yeah, you know? yeah, that phrase, that word pursuit gives the impression that like you will, you'll capture it. Like you'll arrive there at some point and it'll be a box that you checked. Like I achieved happiness mm -hmm. and now I'm never anything but happy. Um, but you know, when we were, if you're pursuing happiness, kind of baked into that definition is that you're not currently happy. So, uh, is it something outside of yourself? Is happiness mm -hmm. something you have to rely on external forces in order to experience? Is it a state of mind? Mm -hmm. Is it a, an attitude? Is it a combination of factors that contribute to your own personal definition of, are you happy? Right. Um, or are we talking about a fleeting emotion like that, like joy that comes and goes and we may have blocks towards and we may feel for a time and then it passes them. We're like, oh no. I think happiness is a complex phenomenon. It's the combination of all the things we're talking about. But most of us, when we think about being happy, when we, like when we're, when we're not happy, like we know we're not happy, um, we're focused on the hedonic pleasure, on the emotion, yeah. like the affect of happiness, which mm -hmm. is a part of happiness, but it, it's not all of it. There's uh, a definition in the book, um, The How of Happiness, that I like, that happiness is described as the experience of joy, contentment, or positive well-being combined with a sense that one's life is good, meaningful, and worthwhile. I like it. I like it. Um, contentment is my favorite spin on happiness. Mm. Um, probably biased by my yoga perspective. Um, you want to hear one of the yoga sutras? Sure. Um, this is uh, <laughs> uh, from 2000 years ago. There was this dude named Patanjali, this mystery dude. Um, and he uh, brought together all the wisdom of, from all the ages of yoga and said, I probably told this on here before, but he gathered people in the Vindhya mountains in India and said, I will, from behind a curtain, I will impart this wisdom to you through telepathy. Mm. And he did. And one of the sutras, sutra meaning stitch or thread of knowledge, I think there are 96 of them. And sometimes I'll teach um, yoga teacher trainees yoga philosophy focused on the sutras. Um, and I'm going to butcher the Sanskrit, but, but Yoga Sutra 2.42 says, Samtosad Anuttama Sukalaba, meaning from contentment unsurpassed, happiness is obtained. Happiness is within our reach from that perspective. And the way to reach it is through this path of contentment, which means being at ease in your situation, in your body, in your mind, being satisfied with what you have, who you are, the path you're on. Not a lazy concept, but a concept, but a concept where in order to be content, you have to kind of come to terms with what you've won and lost and failed at and, and how you've lived fully or how you are living fully and be okay with the imperfections and the unhappy moments too. So that's kind of the framework I like to try on the most. It's interesting because it sounds kind of like the opposite of pursuit. That that, yeah. that is sort of more of the Buddhist or whatever attitude mm -hmm. of, of contentment being that you, to, if you can relinquish your attachment to obtaining what isn't already present, then you will be content. Yeah. And if you are content, you'll be happy. Mm-hmm. Like no, it's, it's a giving up of the wishing things were different. Mm -hmm. The giving up of the comparing 
oneself with the neighbor, what the Joneses have and all that, um, what Instagram people put on mm -hmm. as their mm -hmm. happiness face. Right. And, yeah. yeah. And because our brains are wired the way they are, um, pursuing things feels good. Like that, the presence of dopamine in the brain, that molecule of more mm -hmm. is it's more enjoyable when we're actively pursuing the thing, the goal, building the skill, whatever it is. And most of the happiness research shows that when we obtain the thing, the joy that we experience, the satisfaction that we experience is really short lived. And sometimes mm -hmm. we'll experience a dip afterwards. Yeah. So the people who are very, very goal oriented will often be able to describe this experience. Like, okay, like I, I tried everything I could to accomplish this goal, accumulate this thing, whatever it is, obtain this thing, this yeah. accolade. And then once I had it, I was bummed or I didn't yeah. enjoy it or I adapted to it. Um, I think yep. it's in the pursuit of happiness, not the pursuit of happiness, the happiness hypothesis by Jonathan Haidt talks about the uh, adaptation principle. Mm -hmm. that it, it's what keeps us on that hedonic treadmill that you hear described where we're, we're running and running and running, but we're really not getting anywhere because human humans are really good at, at, at adapting to their circumstances. So the yeah. fancy car is less fancy after a few months. Yeah. That's a really important point that I want to dwell on for a moment of like, is happiness dopamine? Mm -hmm. No, like the molecule of more orients you to seek something and it may feel energizing there there's some happiness components to that but like you mentioned um, we quickly adapt to it and after it runs out which it will um, then there's almost there there's a risk of a rebound phenomenon an example would be people who take adderall mm -hmm. i know adderall is not prescribed for happiness per se but um it, it's prescribed for ADHD, sometimes even for depression. Sometimes people take it for performance enhancing or whatever. Mm -hmm. And at first you might have people describe a, like a blissful mood state, but you get used to that dopamine being delivered on a silver platter. And then, you know, it comes down eventually, which is, which is okay. I mean, life's an ever changing landscape of our neurotransmitters. But what's interesting is that when someone runs out of Adderall and they've been on this steady dose um, or increase their dose and they're getting dopamine on a silver platter, your brain's not used to making it. So you're like an unhappy zombie mm. after you run out for days until your brain gets kicks back into its own dopamine gear, um, which is just an interesting way to answer, maybe not interesting, maybe a stupid way <laughs> to answer, answer the question of is happiness dopamine. It's, mm -hmm. it's not, and if we really try to define it through neurotransmitters, it would be, there would be a dopamine component, there would be a serotonin com mm -hmm. component, which is like the, the social connection and feeling like self-worth and importance mm -hmm. and an oxytocin component of feeling connected mm -hmm. and warm and loving. Yeah. yeah. Well, so it does seem like that an absence of dopamine or a dopamine dip is an unpleasant, will lead to an unpleasant mood state. But I wonder if like, even if you take Adderall out of the equation and you've got somebody who enjoys the pursuit of things, but they have maybe as a substrate or a foundation, the contentment piece you were talking about before as context mm -hmm. so that, you know, yeah. I can still be ambitious and I can still strive, but just knowing that once I accomplish the thing, it's not going to check the box, the eternal box of happiness for me. Yeah. And if I can land in, in that sort of soft bed of, you know what, I actually have all that I need. I have 
if, if you're fortunate enough to say this, right, I have loving connections. I have, mm-hmm. you know, uh, can take care of my basic health and uh, safety needs. Then, you know, maybe you can cycle in and out of these dopamine-driven pursuits um, just knowing that that isn't all that happiness is. It's, again, a component, but not all that happiness is. Yeah, yeah. The way I look at contentment is it, like, widens your container and gives you a bigger perspective of accepting everything that is, whether you're taking out the trash or you're at a, like an opulent banquet party with, um, you know, fascinating people and Mm -hmm. connections or, um, sitting there meditating Mm -hmm. and not wishing you weren't. And you mentioned meditating and that, you know, it makes me think of, um, I think the importance of equanimity Mm -hmm. and mindfulness as a component of happiness that to be able to sort of tie yourself to the mast and have the storms of emotion roil around you without being tugged too deeply by either one, by any one of them, mm-hmm. you know, uh, there's a, there's a steadiness that I think leads to this general sense of well-being that, that one, um, can practice and strengthen through practices like meditation. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that principle of, of equanimity seems key, seems really, really important for a general sense of happiness or well-being. Yeah. There's a paper in the scientific literature where I love the title and the content, but it says a wandering mind is an unhappy mind. Mm. And the premise essentially is that as if your default mode network, your monkey mind, egoic um, narratives and lists of things you need to do and be and everything, if that's more active, you're feeling less happiness in that state. Whereas if you tone it down through a number of things, right, meditating, psychedelics can help, uh, flow state practices, whatever mm-hmm. it may be, mm-hmm. that's that's the non-wandering mind. So basically, that be here now or be loving awareness in the present moment is um, an approach that also embodies that state of happiness. So we're touching on a few things. I'm, I want to go through uh, Martin Seligman's PERMA theory and just kind of mm-hmm. get your take because we're, we're, I'm looking at it in my notes and we're touching on a lot of these these five yeah. kind of pillars Let's of happiness. Do it. So his, uh, it's an acronym, P-E-R-M-A, theory of, of well-being. So he talks about these being the five building blocks that enable flourishing, another, I guess, pseudonym for happiness and well-being, flourishing. And everybody is different. So I'm going to go through these five pillars and people will have, you know, focus more in one than they will in the other. And that's okay. Mm -hmm. But as long as all five are present to some degree, people are generally report feeling generally happy or flourishing or experiencing well-being. So the first one we talked a bit about is positive emotion. So this is that, that route of hedonic pleasure, uh, that one component of happiness or flourishing is having at least you know, instances and hopefully frequent instances that last quite a while of positive affect, of joy, of, um, you know, arousal, of uh, engagement, those kinds of things. And there are ways that you can let those in more. Just mm-hmm. as a brief side note, we tend to all have certain joy blocks to or blocks to positive emotion for a number of reasons. We could, it could be that monkey mind um, not present to the things that would bring it about, or it could be feeling undeserving, mm-hmm. feeling scared that it will go away or, or that depression will creep in. Yeah. So like what you're saying is the stories we tell ourselves about the past, the present moment and the future yeah. can affect our experience of emotion yeah. in, the, in the immediate. 
Um, and he talks about that. He, he talks about uh, increasing our pod- positive emotion about the past by cultivating gratitude, forgiveness, yeah. increasing our positive emotion um, about the present by practicing savoring and mindfulness, mindful connection to the yeah. present moment. Yeah. And then the future by cultivating optimism and, and hope. Yeah, those are important points. Um, I love, well, all those, the savoring, the um, the hope, mm-hmm. but also, what did you say gratitude. before that? Gratitude. So mm-hmm. gratitude, there's not much else that I've seen in that equation that just has so much evidence to back it and practical proof in my own life of mm-hmm. in moments of gratitude. It's almost like, it's like the antidote to unhappiness, mm-hmm. focusing on the good, like not on what you don't have, but appreciating what you do. And sometimes you have to imagine not having the things you have in order to connect you yeah. with that gratitude. You know, this uh, there's like a, a stoic practice of, of doing that, of just imagining everything that you lose everything. You're on the street, you have nothing. Um, and it helps you sort of reconnect with how important the things that you do have really, really are. Because as I said before, we're adaptation machines and it's easy, easy for us to take things for granted. Yeah, and that... Do you mind tangents as we go through this Not list? Yeah. Um, tangents are allowed on this podcast. I always forget. <laughs> <laughs> That's, uh, we make the rules, by the way, Reed. So. <laughs> we actually um, build Tangent this part. thing around our tangents, don't we? <laughs> yeah, we should call this podcast Psychedelic Tangents. Yeah, but there's this idea, um, age-old practice of practicing the art of dying, mm-hmm. like, like focusing on death and impermanence as uh, another antidote or a gratitude practice. Like in some parts of the world, like in India, um, in uh, other parts, say, of Asia, they'll meditate on the dead. They won't avert their eyes to dead bodies. Mm. Um, And they'll actually meditate on that um, to remind oneself of what is important and come back to center in Mm. that regard. Um, Because I I heard Arianna Huffington once give a talk about she was overworking when running the Huffington Post until one day she just collapsed from exhaustion and face plant on her desk and got a bloody nose or something like that. It was it was her wake up call. Now she focuses on happiness in the workplace and things like that. Um, But she said, like, imagine your eulogy. You don't want someone to to get up there and say, oh, Susan was such a great human. She had PowerPoint skills and she always got her to-do list done and she had a good CV, you know? Right. Yeah, it's uh, like the part of the practice would be imagining, like, what are your values? How do you want to show up in the world um, in terms of what really matters? It reminds me of two things. One is memento mori. You know, remember that you will die. The other is that uh, a tombstone pizza commercial back in the day, like, what do you want on your tombstone? And they would be like, oh, pepperoni and cheese. But it, it's, it's, an, it's an interesting thought. Like, what do you, yeah. like, like you're talking about, what do you want to be remembered for? And that can help focus you, focus you on what matters. Yeah. So anyway, tangent complete, Love back it. to the list. <laughs> so the second uh, is engagement. So engagement is an experience in which someone fully deploys their skills, their strengths, their attention to a challenging task. So some of you might recognize this as the flow concept, being in flow. Mihai Csikszentmihalyi's 
notion that when we we have this perfect balance between the challenge, the challenging nature of the activity and our skills and interest, where it's not so challenging that we feel defeated by it, but not so easy that it's boring to us, then we enter into this flow state where we're intimately connected to the present moment, performing in a way that we feel proud of. I feel this when I, when I ski, um, what if I'm skiing well? <laughs> sometimes mm-hmm. I'm not skiing well. When I exercise, when I'm out in nature, sometimes when yeah. I'm meditating. Um, yeah, flow states are, are a state of well-being for sure. It makes sense. It makes sense because you're tuning out that chatter about the past and the future. Mm-hmm. And you're in it like by definition where you can just feel it fully, experience it fully. And I think flow states are one of those states where the default mode's fairly quiet. Yeah. If I remember right. Yeah. You might not remember your appointments and things mm-hmm. while you're flowing hard, but mm-hmm. and that's a, a beautiful thing. And of course we need an ego sometimes. A lot of the time. Yeah. Yeah. I like that one. So the third is relationships. We yes. talked we referenced this one before. Mm-hmm. But uh I would argue this might be the most important one. We are social beings. Uh, very social beings. And there are exceptions to every rule, of course, but Mm -hmm. um, it seems like the most important decision anyone makes is who they spend time with, especially the people they spend time with the most. So who are your romantic romantic partners? You know, who are your close circle of friends? Who do you work around and work with? Um, I was just talking to my wife the other day. I was in this funk, this low mood. And I couldn't really shake it. I was trying the things I'd normally try to shake mm-hmm. this low mood. And then somebody texted me and said, hey, I need to talk to you. I need some help with something. And my first reaction was, oh, like I'm not feeling good. I, I don't know that I can really show up for this person. Called them anyway. And after a 15-minute conversation, I was like cured. <laughs> yeah. Cured of my bad mood. Yeah. That's a, that's a cool hack. Um, doing service, connecting with someone. Okay. Can I insert a tangent on relationships? I'm asking permission. May I? Uh, (laughs) So there was this big ass Harvard study, um, Harvard Medical School on adult development that started back in the 1930s. And it's kind of cool because they tracked people's happiness and well-being over time. And then this cohort of hundreds of people had 1,300 kids. So then there's another generation they're tracking. And uh, since they were teenagers, like 700-something men. Mm-hmm. Um, so 85 years later, the results are out. Three generations, over 2,000 participants now that there are all these descendants. And the number one factor that emerged at the top was having warm relationships. Mm. And if I remember right, those warm relationships not only co- not only correlated with like happiness and well-being, it correlated with whether or not they had heart disease, whether or not they had diabetes, yeah, like yeah. lots of these physical markers too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they asked they asked three questions that I thought were good ones in the study: is one, are you happy? <laughs> Two, is your life meaningful? Mm-hmm. Three, do you have a reason to get up in the morning? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and all the, those three can be baked into this larger umbrella of, of happiness, yeah. uh, meaning and purpose, which we'll get to. But yeah, there's, I, I think, uh, I don't know if it's that study or another one, but it says that having warm relationships, having really, really good relationships is better for your physical health than if you were a smoker and you quit smoking, which is wild because quitting smoking is, you know, if you are a smoker, it's like you'd think it's the best thing you could do for your health. But according to the data, having 
really, really good relationships is even more powerful. I'm not saying you shouldn't quit smoking, but people who smoke enjoy smoking. Maybe sometimes, maybe socially. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Sorry. That was a offensive (laughs) thing to say, but I mean, it's true. I'm offended. It's true. Like there are many people who, who enjoy it, even though it is a very addictive habit and they might get lung cancer. Mm -hmm. Like it's very, very bad for your health, but it's, it's interesting that I just point that out because it, it makes sense too. It's a, it's a great shocking metric, but Mm -hmm. it also makes sense because we as humans tend to ignore the future for better or worse and seek uh, momentary pleasures in this pursuit of happiness. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's anything else to say about relationship. I mean, there's so much to say about relationships, yeah. but yeah. Um, um, is there well, one, I got a Seneca quote here real quick about it. Uh, no, the Seneca we work with or the, the <laughs> no, old the school, stoic school. philosopher. Okay. Yeah. No one can live happily who has regard to himself alone and transforms everything into a question of his own utility. Okay. Okay. No so, one can live happily who has regard to himself alone. Yeah selfishness does not beget true joy and happiness. Yeah. Selfishness can certainly beget momentary pleasure. And it's, it's important to make a distinction here because I remember when I uh, discovered my self care practices that I pursue and rely on now, Mm -hmm. like Mm -hmm. uh, yoga meditation, for example. And I remember having someone once upon a time, many years ago, say, you know, I think that's selfish Mm. to go off to a yoga class. And it took me a minute to um, get my head out of that cloud and realize that we do have to fill our cups with joy and vitality to be able to share that, reflect that to others. Um, And so selfishness, uh, we have to be careful with the self-critical parts of us that say we need to always be in the service of others. Um, yeah. Because, I mean, obviously you can burn yourself out and then you're not happy and you're not of service. Right. Yeah. I, you know, there's, there's room in my heart for love for myself and for other people. Yeah. It doesn't have to be either or. Um, yeah. So I can, I can take loving care of myself in the form of, you know, like you were describing the, the yoga stuff, but that doesn't mean that I can't also uh, be reciprocal to others. Yeah. That's, that reciprocity is another thing that's really, really important in social relationships that make you feel be- like you belong, like you're part mm-hmm. of something bigger. Um, and uh, so that, you know, you receive from others and it feels good to receive and you give back. Yeah. Um, another component of it is the body. Like, and in my working definition of happiness, joy, one of the components is health and vitality. Mm-hmm. And um, some schools of thought in uh, like meditative disciplines ignore the body and some like Vajrayana Buddhism really focuses on it as a vehicle for enlightenment, AKA true happiness. And so I think it was Trumpa Rinpoche who said, there's no division between the spirituality and of the mind and the body. They're both the same. Mm-hmm. And it's a really important reminder of like, take care of yourself so you can help others do the same. So you can have freedom in this world to do these things we're talking about. Yeah. I like the cup metaphor. You know, I want to serve people from the excess. If I fill my cup overflowing, um, as long as I keep doing that, I'll, I'll, I'll always have 
more to give. Steve's cup overfloweth. Overfloweth with mm. love. Yes. Cool. So yeah, that's relationships. Mm-hmm. Um, the next one is meaning. And a sense of meaning and purpose can be, again, this is from Seligman's work. A sense of meaning and purpose can be derived from belonging to and serving something bigger than the self. There are various societal institutions that enable a sense of meaning for people. So you have religions, family, science, politics, work, um, people, justice, community, etc. People uh, who belong to a community of worship, even religions, even though there are some pitfalls of happiness there mm-hmm. in terms of like guilt and and things like that that we've talked about, um, I think it's in large part from the those two things you just said, being part of a community with a shared ideal greater than oneself mm-hmm. and um, connecting with some kind of spirituality, um, connecting with the other humans and connecting with that uh, divine, whatever that means to you beyond oneself. I'm glad you acknowledged both because certainly there are things that are problematic about being tribal creatures, about uh, othering the other. Drama. About, you know... Uh, starting, was it Jamie Wheel who said, oxytocin is the love your neighbor drug. It's also the curb stomp your neighbor drug, like mm-hmm. um, neurotransmitter, hormone, whatever. Um, so yeah, there are certainly things that are problematic about our tendency to, to join teams and compete with other teams. However, um, I, I read a stat the other day that people who have strong identification with communities like this, religions, political parties, whatever, yeah. they're less likely to die by suicide than people who don't yeah. have these strong affiliations. It's, uh, it makes sense from the literature. I think we've both uh, discussed and followed, looked at uh, Tom Joyner's research. He's written like 500 plus papers mm-hmm. on suicide and, it, and the interpersonal theory of like the neurobiology of suicide. And one of them is when you're sense of belonging is thwarted. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a huge risk risk factor. Yeah. Even worse, if uh, if you feel like you're a burden, you know, perceived burdensomeness yeah. is uh, a huge, another huge risk factor for, yeah. for suicidality. And suicidality, um, one could look at as a sign from the body, just like we have kind of emotions, whether they're primary, secondary, or complex, undifferentiated globs of emotion, or crises, panic attacks that spill out, uh, like they are a signal of something inside. And and there's something really philosophical, existential about when a wish to not be alive comes up, it signals that uh, the pain of being alive is, has become greater than that idea of dying. Right. Yeah. Right. So um, other things I think that contribute to meaning is a sense of purpose. You know, yeah. not only that I belong, but that what I do matters. And mm-hmm. it's certainly common in, in today's Western society to feel like I have to have, uh, be passionate about, especially what I do for work. I need to find my passion. We have an episode about passion, I think, long ago. We talked about this. So you can go hunting for that episode if you're interested in more do details it. there. Um, but yeah, I think even, even if um, the passion really is, is nothing that is ever completed, it maybe is just tuning up nicely and being living in alignment with your values. Mm-hmm. Um, but like we said before, I think it really, it also needs to involve a connection to something outside of yourself. Either you're serving a cause or you're serving another person. 
um, back to this notion of selfishness being a quick path to unhappiness. Yeah. Uh, I think that's, that's inextric- inextricably tied to a sense of purpose and meaning. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Man's Search for Meaning. Mm-hmm. One of the greatest books I've ever read by Viktor Frankl. Yeah. Yeah. And he talks a lot about that. You know, that one mm-hmm. of the, in the book, that one of the things that helped the, the constant, one of the things that made the difference between whether or not you survived the concentration camps, the, the Nazi concentration camps, or did not, mm-hmm. apart from some of the obvious factors, was whether or not um, you felt like you were connected to a higher purpose. And uh, the people who were helping one another versus the people who sort of crawled up in the fetal position all alone were the ones that tended to survive. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And logotherapy, right? He, t- he talks a lot about making meaning. Uh, the power of our minds to just choose where we focus and the narrative we tell ourselves has a lot to do with whether or not we suffer. It's a lot of what we do in therapy, mm-hmm. help people do, and in psychedelic therapy, especially integration, is making meaning, mm-hmm. helping make meaning, draw these connections, these bridges with things outside of ourselves and finding purpose in the struggle. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, in some ways, therapy is, um, it's like a dojo for meaning making. You, you come in mm-hmm. there or a laboratory or whatever, I'll pick your metaphor. Um, yeah, so when, when, for instance, if somebody's in therapy for uh, PTSD, they're, they're trying to resolve their trauma, um, it's not about excising it. It's not about cutting it out or pretending like it never happened. happened. It's usually about confronting it and then changing or reinterpreting what it means for the present state so that my, my nervous system no longer has to re- react as if I'm in clear and present danger in the moment because mm-hmm. I've now re- I've recategorized this traumatic event. Um, yeah. By the way, did you see that MAPS did an announcement yesterday about some long-term MDMA data for PTSD? Yeah, I did. Exciting. Yeah, we'll have to review it in a an upcoming episode. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the, the, the short story is that uh, it still seems like it works. <laughs> Even months later. Months and months later. Yeah. It's durable. Um, here's a super tangent. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was thinking, I've been thinking about this for a long time, but I think I've come up with a couple metaphors for how MDMA helps with uh, trauma work versus ketamine versus mm. others. Um, you want to hear it? Of course. Yeah. It's uh, so... And uh, part of this uh, was a seed planted by, um, oh, it's it's a researcher in the UK um, who talked about MDMA as a bulletproof vest. Mm. And so if if trauma is, you know, not just the event that happened um, or the events, but your ability to process it and be held and the resources you had or didn't have at the time, and then... It gets locked in the body. We have a, a narrative around it, all these things. Um, the, we're understanding that the healing journey is about going back there. You've got to feel it to heal it. You've got to reclaim that part of your identity that you lost or walled off. And it's not about, like you said, excising it. That comment is why I'm thinking about mm-hmm. this. So um, you got to go back into the battle zone. And uh, that's too scary for... Many people with serious trauma without the help of medicine by using traditional approaches, right? Like we've seen that time and time again. Mm-hmm. Not that it can't be done, but... Yeah, it's done all the time in therapy, but yeah. But um, for some people, like the people going to the MAPS trials who had PTSD for 
an average of like seven, 10 years, mm-hmm. um, severe. So uh, MDMA with this combination of serotonin, norepinephrine, dopamine, oxytocin, it's like a bulletproof vest where you can just walk in with confidence, see it, feel some things, bring it back mm. to wholeness. Um, ketamine, this is the, the part that uh, I've just been thinking about. Ketamine as a dissociative psychedelic anesthetic puts you at a bit of a distance from the trauma. I see it as almost like you're in a helicopter mm. swooping in. And you got to have some skills to navigate this, right? It might take a few sessions. Um, and you're kind of throwing down a rope or a grappling hook or, or hanging from a rope out of the helicopter at this safe dissociated distance um, to revisit it and take back what's yours, return to wholeness lovingly. Um, I like those two metaphors. And both. it seems like both medicines just allow a person to approach what is unapproachable. Yeah, yeah. So that they can do what we're talking about here, like make new meaning. I had to throw in a psychedelic tidbit to our Psychedelic Therapy Frontiers yes. podcast. <laughs> a nod to the title of our podcast, for sure. So the last um, in this PERMA, five building blocks that enable Why flourishing. Perma? It's just a... Acronym? acronym, yeah. Okay. Positive emotion, engagement, relationships, meaning, and the last is accomplishment. So we talked a bit about this already, but this uh, pursuit of achievement, um, competence, success, mastery, but for its own sake is the, the big delineator between I just, I really want to earn this much money so I can get this car. That's when the dopamine drops and it's like we acclimate to the car and it's no longer really something that stimulates happiness or well-being. It's, you know, I am, I am learning to play a musical instrument because I enjoy the process of skill acquisition. Yeah. So it's accomplishment for its own sake, not for the other external accolades or rewards. Yeah. And not to get to the end of it either. Mm-hmm. I like how Alan Watts points it out with musicians. Like they're not hurrying until their piece is over. Right? They're playing music because that is the joyful thing, is playing the music. And there are spaces in between the notes that are very important too. And you're, whether you're dancing or singing or playing some music, it's, uh, that is the joy. Yeah, I like Not that. when it's over. Yeah, yeah, I like that. Playing a musical piece, is, it's not to get to the last note. Uh-huh. It's to perform the piece. It's to play it. Yeah. I like that. yeah. So that's, that's the PERMA list. That's PERMA. That's Martin Seligman, the uh, godfather of positive yeah. psychology. Yeah, he really did birth a movement. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yesterday. He, he, just, he just came out with a book that's basically a memoir. I think it's oh, called cool. The Hope, Hope Circuit. I haven't read it yet. But oh. yeah, apparently it's because he, he's you know, very, been very public about struggling with depression himself. Hmm. And that his, his birthing of positive psychology kind of was... Uh, came out of that personal struggle. Yeah, I think it's when that came along and he was probably doing this for a while before I started following along, but Mm -hmm. uh, I was so grateful for it as the other side of the coin, perhaps the most important one of, uh, you know, it's not all about the healing. It's definitely not all about diagnosing pathology. Like there's a risk of over pathologizing the human experience and uh, focusing only on getting out of the pits we fall into. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, When I was exposed to it in graduate school, that really appealed to me because I was a a clinical psychologist. We're talking about, you know, diagnoses, like you said, psychopathologies, pathologies, right? 
there wasn't a whole lot of focus on human on the other end of the spectrum, human flourishing. Like how do we go from baseline yeah. to best? Which is interesting because like folks like Maslow tried mm-hmm. to bring it in mm-hmm. <laughs> um, with this hierarchy of needs and the self actualization and and recognizing the fundamental things. Um, which reminds me of another point on happiness. Um, when I went first went down the positive psychology rabbit hole and went down it for quite some time. I was really intrigued by data on income and happiness mm-hmm. and how um, how income supports one's uh, ability to be happy to a certain point. Mm-hmm. And then beyond that, it really does not contribute and may bring about some more traps and attachments and, and sticky things that could get in the way. And the latest study I saw, and this totally depends on where you live and family and everything else, was like money can only buy happiness, silly way to put it, up to about 75K a year for a human. Uh, And beyond that, you know, if you're pursuing happiness by pursuing six figures and then more, more hundreds of thousands or zeros on your six figures, then that's a pursuit of happiness that is uh, likely not to yield what you're hoping for. Yeah. yeah. I have read that that 75K number has been updated just given inflation and yeah. you know, cost of living nowadays. But but the point, the principle is the same. A good book about this is The Psychology of Money by Morgan Housel, I think is the way you say mm. his last name. Really cool book. Yeah. But, you know, money solves money problems. If, if you uh, can't afford healthcare, if you can't afford, you know, rent, if you can't afford food, making more money will make you happier for sure. Um, yeah. but then there's this, this kind of that window you're talking about in the middle where, um, you know, more or less money's not going to matter too much. And then there's some data that suggests that if you break into that sort of quote unquote upper class, uh, one percenter uh, that money then buys you autonomy, which does tend to lead to more life satisfaction. Yeah. You know, now I don't have to answer to a boss, like the, the people who are living off the dividends from their investments or whatever. Um, but a lot of the people who win the money game are people who are burning what I call like a dirty fuel source of insecurity. They mm-hmm. need to prove something, got a chip on their shoulder. And so they, they, they escape the, the, the sort of well of pain that poverty is. And then because they no longer need more money, but the insecurity remains, more money is just going into a, a, like a, a bottomless pit in their soul. So you find a lot of wealthy folks who are bored and also very unhappy. Yeah. So yeah, the the pursuit of wealth is not evil in and of itself. It, just like the pursuit of these things that we've been talking about generally is not necessarily yeah. bad, as long as you have a, a clearer understanding of what it really means to be happy. Yeah, uh, and the pursuit depends on what you're pursuing it for mm-hmm. and what you do with it and your meaning and things like that. But another factor that I noticed was like, a long commute, like we're talking about 45 minutes, an hour, hour and a half each way. Mm-hmm. There are these factors that not surprisingly can take away from your happiness. And I think it all comes down to something you mentioned is freedom, personal freedom, mm-hmm. uh, liberation from some of the chains or constraints that uh, make happiness hard. Like, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Like if you're having to work two jobs or you're having to drive forever when you'd rather be at home with those warm relationships, for example. Right. So this makes me think of sort of the two factors that contribute to happiness. There's the external factors and the internal factors. Mm -hmm. And you could say that the internal factors are things like your genes, 
like not, not, the, not your blue jeans, but your genetic code, like how heritable is your happiness set point. Set point. We can get into that. Yeah. Um, and then factors like your gender, your race, um, the circumstances that you're in, in the immediate present. And then there are these external factors like, you know, the job, mm-hmm. the commute. Yep. And some of them you have more control over, which is, and some of them you don't. But um, just referencing what I said earlier about the happiness set point. Some of the research suggests that happiness is like somewhere between 50 and 80% heritable. And I think it's on the lower end personally. Yeah. Yeah. And then it's not a set point, like a thermostat. Like it's not that your, your mood is set to 75 and it'll always return there. It's more like a distribution where you have a, a, a low tail and a high tail and you can do some things that will keep you at that high tail. You may never be as happy as somebody who has been blessed with a genetic code to just be Pollyannish and happy all the time. But your, your, uh, kind of default, um, mood state, uh, has a genetic component, like Mm -hmm. your disposition, your mindset of fixed versus growth and your ability to roll with the punches. And maybe your neurotransmitter makeup. Yeah. It could be, I mean that you, that's how it all happens. It's part of it, right? It's certainly part of it. Yeah. I remember when I was younger and I struggled with depression and anxiety a lot when I was younger, my happiness set points actually pretty low. Um, becoming a psychologist, was a reaction to that. (laughs) I wanted Mm -hmm. to understand myself. I want to understand the human mind. Why was I unhappy for no reason? You know? Um, and it's, I'm glad to, 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 uh, report to listeners that my, my happiness set point or my, my range is actually a lot higher now. Yeah. That could be a phase of life thing. I'm entering sort of midlife and people tend to report, you know, increases in contentment as they get a little bit older. Yeah, we should we should dissect that a little bit. But I'm curious, what other things do you attribute it to? Like, are there key factors, um, practices, lessons learned that have raised your set point? Yeah, good question. So I think I was um, really, really curious about the human mind. But I had this idea that I would discover something that would solve the problems, that would give me certainty. I was sort of, in a sort of OCD way, I was really obsessed with certainty. I wanted to know the right way to be so I could get all the love. The pursuit of happiness. Yeah, I was Mm -hmm. pursuing it hard, but I was unhappy the whole time. So um, I got a lot of therapy when I was Mm -hmm. in college. And then, you know, of course, starting a graduate program in, in clinical psychology, all my teachers and mentors were licensed psychologists. And I was learning from a lot of good people. But the best decision the thing that had the most impact on my happiness was marrying my wife. It was mm-hmm. this, uh, shit, I'm going to get emotional. <laughs> Do it. <laughs> it was finding this person that, yeah. um, just loved me un- unconditionally, you know, from, from the get go. That's beautiful. Even when I felt like I didn't deserve it and she sort of brought out the best in me and we've grown together. We've been together for over 18 years. Yeah. So that, that's been huge for sure. And then um, discovering psychedelics as a profession has given me purpose where I felt a little lost as a therapist and burned Mm -hmm. out. Um, And then some of my own psychedelic experiences have been completely game-changing. It's part of why I'm passionate about this work is that if they can help me, um, they can help a lot of other people. Yeah, I've been... Oh, thank you for sharing that, Yeah, thanks for asking. (laughs) Um, I've been thinking about this a lot lately because... We sit with a lot of people through their psychedelic experiences. We talk to people about it. We've had our own. And I've been uh, just reminded a lot lately of transformative experiences in, in people all around that um, were turning points in, on people's happiness journey with the help of psychedelic medicine. It doesn't have to be that. Like, and you got to be careful 
with psychedelic medicines for good reasons, things we talk about. But but looking at it in, in me, for example, um, that thing we were talking about earlier, equanimity, uh, or the ability to um, have a wider container around my feelings has been a game changer. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. like I just notice these days being able to um, receive triggers that might have that I might have taken personally or felt butt hurt for minutes or even hours mm-hmm. um, and receive them, but in like a, kind of a more of a microprocessing, like feel it, acknowledge it, but slip back into that observer seat and be, and just chuckle at it mm-hmm. and uh, mm-hmm. um, return to that loving presence. And like, I'm not saying I have it figured out or do that all the time, but that one lesson that has been uh, accelerated by some important psychedelic uh, therapy experiences has been uh, game changing in, mm-hmm. in my set point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. That, that uh, jives with, with my experience too. I think I'm much less reactive to my triggers and that's taken a lot of practice and a mm-hmm. lot of learning the same lessons over and over and over again. Um, and, you know, also just changing a general, my wife has to remind me every once in a while when I'm in a bad mood, like, Steve, you know, you have to actually changed quite a bit since I've met you. Cause I'm like, oh man, I'm feeling the same stuff. I always mm-hmm. felt I'm never going to escape this. And, and she's right. Like I, I have a, um, a more, I like what you said. Like there's, there's just more space in me for all the stuff, yeah. including the things that used to torture me, like uncertainty. Um, and instead of looking at a, at the world or myself as a puzzle that I need to complete or figure out, I can look at it as uh, just a, a forest of chaos I get to explore. And I'll never explore yeah. all of it. And I'll never, I don't have to finish or fix anything. And for me, that's comforting. The memento mori stuff is part of that for me. Like just knowing that, you know, a few hundred years after I'm dead, anything I did or anybody that ever knew me is going to be dust. It's going to be recycled by the earth and it won't have quote unquote mattered. Not in, not in a pessimistic way, but for me, that's an optimistic thing. It's kind of <laughs> a little bit yeah. of optimistic nihilism. It, it let, lets me off the hook a bit. Um, as you might, as anybody who's listening might be able to gather, anxiety was a bit of, a bit of my, you know, uh, yeah. Yeah. of my issue growing up, but yeah, so much, you know, so much I'm grateful for there. Someone, uh, told me once about drama. I don't remember who, but uh, it stuck with me. I use it all the time as like. In the face of the drama of this existence we call life, just get out the popcorn, mm. you know? And like there, you can be form and formless, like in the world and not of the world with these kind of practices. Like you can keep your open heart in the melodrama um, and not get completely derailed into a state of unhappiness, unrest. Uh, it doesn't have to affect you in the same way that it did before. And understandably, you know, it affected you in a way before because we're all on this journey learning mm-hmm. what our buttons are and what to do with them. Yeah, yeah, well said. Yeah. Um, most recently, I think, uh, my study of IFS and parts, thinking of myself as a symphony of selves, yeah, has been really helpful for me to re- in my efforts to respond to triggers in a healthy way. You know, so if I, if I do fall into a bad mood or if I do feel triggered quickly, as quickly as I can, seeing that as a part of me that's trying to get a need met 
has just yeah. been, it's just been a really helpful way for me and, and a lot of my clients whom I've um, mm-hmm. been framing therapy in an IFS frame. Uh, that's been really, really helpful. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned it because just last weekend I completed, uh, Han and I were doing this together and some colleagues from uh, Canada mm-hmm. were in our cohort, Devin and Cody. Mm-hmm. Um, we completed level one IFS training. Yeah. And uh, it was it was so profound and dare I say transformative for nearly everyone. And the fun thing is, is when you go into these demos, there's, uh, you don't make up a case. You bring your most vulnerable self and get cracked open and explore the, not only the protector parts, but the wounded exiles and find them and bring them out of that pain and help them unburden it and, and return to the light of this loving system. And I've noticed even even since this boot camp, this final boot camp uh, that we all did in California last week, four days of, of the last part of the training, um, just using the model personally <clears throat> countless times per day, like you're saying. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is, it is a really good framework for doing what we've been talking about, um, recognizing things for what they are as a part with a need um, that uh, doesn't see the big picture. Yeah. yeah. It reminds me of the shift I experienced in graduate school when I first learned CBT and the concept that, you know, you are not your thoughts, that, that just because yeah. you have a thought doesn't mean that it's uh, valid, valid in the sense that doesn't mean it's an accurate appraisal of your situation or who you are or your or reality mm-hmm. um, and that you don't have to believe it. And then when I studied ACT and, and brought in the mindfulness component, like I, there are these, these tectonic shifts for me yeah. in my career as a psychologist, but also personally as, as sort of... Uh, you know, a, a psychonaut into my own, this inner space of my own mind, um, and IFS, and I'm not an IFS trained therapist. I only use the principles of parts a little bit in therapy and, and personally, but, uh, has been one of those shifts for me. Yeah. And, and also when you got a pinch of psychedelic on your mm-hmm. career and therapeutic practices, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Pinch of psych, uh, <laughs> is it the, the Huxley, Osmond, Osmond go back and forth being phanerothyme and, and psychedelic. Something sore angelic, try a pinch of psychedelic. It was something like that. To fathom hell or sore angelic, there you go. take a pinch of psychedelic. That was that was Humphrey Osmond's rebuttal mm-hmm. to Aldous Huxley's poem saying, you should call it this. Yeah, it was phanerothyme. It was something, something sublime, yeah. something, something phanerothyme. Yeah, <laughs> I've forgotten mind. Huxley's yeah. stuff, even though he's one of the most brilliant writers. Yeah. And I remember the psychiatrist, Dr. Osmond's uh, winning rebuttal. (laughs) But uh, yeah, so coincidentally, I know we just decided to talk about this topic today, Mm -hmm. right? Confession, last minute is not unlike us. (laughs) (laughs) Hopefully it's not too obvious. Off the cuff, Mm -hmm. um, maybe we do it on purpose Mm -hmm. to be more... Spontaneous. Yeah, in the hot seat. Um, But yesterday I was in a 12-hour LSD study dosing session. Mm -hmm. I didn't get the medicine myself. Mm. I was holding space. Facilitating. (laughs) Yeah, um, co-facilitating. And uh, had some time to ponder and read as part of it. And coincidentally, I was writing this inventory of like what constitutes happiness Mm. in life and made my own list of 10 things. And I just remembered this when we were sitting down 
and happen to have my notebook, you want to hear them? Of course. How serendipitous. Yeah. Um, so first of all, how to define it, like happiness or even success. Let's mm. say, like, how would you define it? Enjoying the journey, continued expansion of that joy and contentment, the progressive realization of your worthy ideals and values, living in harmony with them, abundant flow of goodness, benevolence to you and others, liberation from the unnecessary constraints and suffering. It's kind of like the definition, but what makes up happiness for me is the 10 things I wrote down were in no particular order, good health, energy, vitality, enthusiasm, zest for life, like mm -hmm. that waking up with a purpose, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. fulfilling relationships, creative freedom, freedom, abundance, whatever that means to you, like we're talking about, like freedom from the constraints of, of uh, things that make it extra hard to have any sense of personal freedom in the world. Um, emotional, mental stability, a sense of well-being, peace of mind, and then the last one, free flow of love and divinity. Hmm. It's a wonderful list. Yeah. I liked it. <laughs> it might be a good place to wrap up. How long have we been talking? Um, unless there's anything else pressing. Forever. That's such a great list, Reed. I love that. Thank you for sharing it. Yeah, yeah. Um, so maybe just in closing from my end, um, how to how to be happy mm. <laughs> is uh, to recap celebrating what's good, mm -hmm. right? being here now, mm -hmm. letting go of the unnecessary suffering and melodrama that we tend to take on, following your bliss, to quote Joseph Campbell, like, or your curiosity or your dharma, your meaning, and then taking inspired action on that and uh, cherishing your relationships. Love it. And of course, um, maybe it goes without saying, but I'll, I'll say it anyway, that uh, if you're in a situation where you are oppressed, where you are in danger, um, where you are being abused, you don't just magic happiness, yeah. right? You, if some of this is, some of our conversation today is built on the sort of the back of privilege that we yep. can talk about focusing on happiness because our safety needs are met. Um, so we just want to nod and name that that's an important variable here. Yeah, I'm glad you did. As we wrap it up, yeah. Okay, well, thanks, Steve. It's right. fun to chat about this with you. As always, thank you. Mm -hmm. Psychedelic Therapy Frontiers is brought to you by Numinous, a mental wellness company committed to tackling the global mental health crisis by delivering best-in-class psychedelic-assisted therapies, contributing to the body of primary and clinical psychedelic research, and fostering healing through community connection and social responsibility. You can learn more about Numinous at Numinous.com. That's N-U-M-I-N-U-S.com. If you enjoyed the show today and you want to support us, here's how you do it. Rate and review the show on platforms like Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Subscribe to the Numinous YouTube channel, like the videos, and share it. Share the show or clips of the show with someone that you think will enjoy it. Hey listeners, it's Steve Thayer here, letting you know that Numinous offers unique training opportunities for mental health practitioners to develop their skills and expertise in offering psychedelic-assisted therapy to clients. These courses are carefully crafted by numinous professionals like myself, Reed, Joe, and others. 
and offer a variety of high quality learning experiences. So if you would like to learn more about these trainings, you can find the link in the show notes below, or you can visit numinous.com forward slash training. That's numinous.com forward slash training. The content of this podcast does not constitute medical advice or mental health treatment. Consult with a medical or mental health professional if you believe you are in need of mental health treatment.